Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Uh, and we are joined, as usual, by three of our uh, longtime regulars and friends, starting with, in Washington, D.C., I believe, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you, Corey? I'm exceedingly well. Thank you, David. That is a high bar for the rest of us to aspire to. Also in Washington, D.C., um, better now than he was even an hour ago, David Sanger of the New York Times. How are you, David? Very good. Very good, David. Good to be with you. Fully, fully inoculated? Well, partially inoculated. Partially inoculated. Well, that's a that's you know a step in the right direction, and um, back after a few weeks of working intensively on his 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 book, uh, memoir of his journey to manhood, um, uh, Ed (laughs) of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed? That's an unfinished memoir, of course. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm doing well, but not as exceedingly well as Corey because I haven't had a jab. I've not been inoculated. Uh, well, um, t- the time will come. This, as as we were saying moments before we started, Deep State Radio has to be considered an essential service, um, and uh, and and you should you should certainly be able to get in line in no time. Um, one of the things that makes today's podcast a little bit different from our others um, is that we have brought the technology that we use on our Wednesday podcast, which allows us to set up a little webinar room via Zoom uh, to this podcast so that some of our regular members um, can pose questions to you guys uh, who they have been following for a long, long time. Um, And uh, so uh, for those of you who are in the webinar room, the way you do that is you go to the bottom of the Zoom window and there's a little button that says Q&A and you click on Q&A and you put in the question. Uh, but I think, you know, I'll start with a couple of my own questions. And um, uh, let me start with you, uh, Corey, and go around. But we, we, we had um, an interesting uh, uh, set of developments in the past few days with regard to the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor, Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, met with their Chinese counterparts in Anchorage, Alaska, last Thursday and Friday, um, and uh, the the opening session, which is you know usually time for niceties of one sort or another, um, wasn't. Uh, the the U.S. was kind of tough on the Chinese. The Chinese didn't take it very well. They were kind of tough on the U.S. Um, uh, the U.S. responded to the Chinese toughness with more toughness. The Chinese responded, um, and uh, and then there was a little bit of flurry of in the press of saying, "Oh, we're off on the wrong foot." 
Uh, on the other hand, if the U.S. had been super nice to the Chinese, there would have been a flurry in the press saying, oh, we're placating the Chinese. We're not being strong enough. Uh, I, I would add, finally, that uh, this has been followed up today by a coordinated effort involving the United States, Canada, and the EU uh, to impose sanctions on a few folks in China with regard to uh, their uh, genocidal treatment of the Uyghurs. Uh, this is uh, seems fairly limited, sanctions on a couple of people in one organization. Um, but as it happens, it's the most uh, uh, significant set of sanctions the U.S. has posed, imposed on the Chinese since Tiananmen Square. So, and, and it was coordinated. So what's your reaction to all that, Corey? Um, it sounds to me like the death step in public at the Anchorage meeting was premeditated on both sides. That is, uh, the Americans wanted to show that they weren't going to be intimidated by the Chinese. And the Chinese uh, rose to the occasion to look like the bullies that uh, we described them as. And I thought Tom Wright's article in The Atlantic had it exactly right, namely that this was a useful clearing of the air. And it's not at all clear to me this means you can't uh, have any cooperative business done with China. But I do think there was uh, that the Chinese government may have wanted to persuade itself that the Biden administration wasn't tough enough to hang in there. Um, and I think the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State did quite a fine job showing that they could um, give as good as they got. Moreover, they could give better than they got because when challenged by the Chinese about many Americans don't believe your democracy is working and one thing and another, um, we, the difference between free societies and repressive societies is that it's true many Americans agree with that. And they have the freedom to say that about their own government in criticism and in work for improving it. I actually thought it was fine. I don't, I don't think it's particularly worrisome. I thought it was a useful um, way for the Biden administration to show that they're not gonna be softies. And I actually do think that the Chinese government probably is and ought to be a lot more concerned about the Biden administration than they were about the Trump administration, because Team Biden looks like they have the ability to, uh, you know, get their ducks in a row and have consistent self-reinforcing policy actions, and that you wouldn't have the American head of state um, giving the Chinese a pass on Hong Kong, on Uyghur on other depredations that the government of China has imposed. I think the most interesting question though, is um, in the reactions of uh, potential allies, so winnable countries on one side or the other, I'd be interested what Malaysians think of that, what Indians think of that, what um, Pacific Islanders think of that. Do they think it came off as, as a warning sign to uh, third parties, as Nadesh Rolan has suggested? Or do they think uh, it shows a strong China successfully uh, holding its own against the United States? Uh, I'd love to know from anybody who knows the answer to that, 
what other countries are reacting to. Well, Ed, you know, this is no welcome back for you because Corey has said everything there is to be said and she said it well. So, you know, I, you know, I don't know how you can add to add that, but go ahead, give it a shot. Yeah, um, Corey has exhausted all the all the reasonable options, so I'll choose an unreasonable one. Um, I mean, I do agree that um, the Tom Wright's piece probably took a good measure of what happened in Anchorage, namely that this isn't sort of like we're not teetering on the brink of disaster here. This is a clearing of the air as much as anything else. Um, but we are still awaiting um, what in practice it's going to look like the the china strategy of, of the biden administration there are all kinds of reviews that are take there's a pentagon one there's a white house one there's different reviews taking place that are going to take their time confront and cooperate is i guess the sort of basic um rubric for how they're going to approach this which is sort of the opposite of kissinger it's delinkage it's it, hoping that we can sort of have a siloed approach to china whereby john kerry you know, talks to his counterparts in Beijing about climate change. Um, and that is unaffected by whatever harsh words are being exchanged over human rights or democracy, or indeed um, between the various trade and technology um, representatives and conversations that, you know, are going to start to overwhelm us on, on technology. And that is an admirable aspiration. I've no doubt that given the sort of caliber of people like Blinken and Jake Sullivan and Kurt Campbell, who of course was there too in Alaska, that they will, you know, manage this um, in a very integrated and, um, you know, a smarter way as they can. But I think it's gonna be extremely difficult um, to do that. The one sort of positive sign we've had in the last few days is, is what you mentioned, um, David, in, in your question to Corey, which is the European, Europeans seem to be coming around more to the American view. They, they got off to a bad start from the Biden administration's point of view with um, this investment treaty with China. Um, now that the Chinese have sanctioned a lot of Europeans, members of the European parliament, European government officials, NGOs, in retaliation for the European um, Xinjiang sanctions, now that that's happened, the um, ratification of that EU-China um, deal in the European Parliament looks less likely, which is good news from um, the White House, from the Biden administration's um, point of view. Yeah, no, no question about it. The coordination with our allies is a plus and, and something quite different from what we've seen recently. Uh, David, final question in this series. We have a bunch of questions from the audience, and I'll switch to those in a second. But Prior to the events in, in Anchorage over the course of the preceding 10 days, um, we heard from uh, the uh, commander of uh, U.S. forces in the Indo-Pacific. We've heard from the commander of Southcom. We heard from the commander of Northcom, all of whom uh, focused on the Chinese threat. Um, all the, 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 the commander of Southcom referred to it as insidious and saw the Chinese as being very active in Latin America in, in, a, in a variety of ways. Um, uh, Commander Northcom talked about activity in, in this uh, hemisphere and of course made reference to cyber. Um, uh, in terms of US Indo-Pacific Command, you know, the Chinese Navy is now at least in terms of number of vessels, um, uh, slightly larger than the US Navy, although in terms of quality of, 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 of Warships, it's nowhere nearly in the same league. Um, but 
it does seem to be that there is a push on the defense side um, to to ratchet up our um, uh, level of concern about China. How do you think that affects all this? Um, well, David, I think what's going on here is that if you're looking to increase your budget uh, for the military at a moment when uh, you are um, concerned that Joe Biden might be cutting back traditional systems, which they've made pretty clear they're going to go do, then China's uh, a really uh, good active way uh, to go make that argument. Um, I argued in the Sunday Times that uh, the lesson of the past few months and certainly of the Anchorage um, thing is that that's the wrong measure out here. That the, the big inroads we've been concerned about by the Chinese have been technological, they've been trade uh, oriented, uh, but that uh, the, um, the defense side of it, while you're certainly gonna wanna keep up in AI and in cyber and in um, hypersonics and so forth, is not really where you need to go focus. Where you need to go focus is the technological competition. And uh, so that takes you to how well positioned are we on that, on that issue right now? And I think the answer to that uh, was sort of the subtext of the Anchorage meeting. Um, I think that uh, Secretary Blinken and Jake Sullivan did the right thing by going to the tougher end of the spectrum at the beginning, because it's a lot easier to walk back to be a little bit easier to, to ease off on that than it is to accelerate it later on. You saw the dangers with President Trump when he went through three years of saying, we can do a deal with China and never getting the deal. And then one year of shouting about the China virus and never getting his deal. Um, so I think this is a much more long-term approach that integrates the human rights side and the technological competition and recognizes that this is not uh, like the Cold War competitions of the past. I think the big risk for them uh, is that they have this group of things, as Corey mentioned, on which they need cooperation. And their bet is that the Chinese will decide that if it's in their national interest, they'll cooperate, whether that's climate or North Korea or something like that. And I'm not sure that's a right bet right now. I think at this point, the um, competition side with the United States may overwhelm the Chinese decision-making process, even if it comes at the cost of some of their interests. Um, uh, on climate, on North Korea, and so forth. Let me ask one last question related to the Chinese thing to uh, Corey. Then I'm going to go around and pull some of these questions in from the audience. Again, if you're in the audience, you want to pose a question, go to the Q&A box and put it in there. Um, but Corey, one of the things that I, I think it'd be a mistake to, to ignore or sidestep um, is that this shift uh, to a more competent policy, but also to one that uh, identifies um, uh, problem areas, competition areas, um, and potential rivalry uh, is coming at a time when uh, violence against Asian Americans has gone up 150%. Some of that violence was no doubt fueled by the former um, president of the United States' 
a focus on the Chinese as a source of the COVID virus. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, there's a long tradition and, 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 and an unfortunate tradition that goes back to, um, you know, the, certainly throughout the past hundred years, but even longer than that, where the United States on a regular basis, when we identify an overseas enemy, um, we tend to culturally vilify them here, whether it's worried about the Red Scare in the wake of World War I and the Palmer raids and going after people who are immigrants, Japanese internment camps, um, uh, post, post 9-11 bashing of people who looked like they might be of Middle Eastern origin, uh, you know, creating sort of tropes in the media and so forth about these people as enemies. How, how much do you worry that this corrosion uh, in, 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 in U.S. cultural views is going to impact uh, this relationship? And could it create a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy with regard to, you know, a state of enmity with the Chinese? So um, I am not that concerned that the Chinese government can effectively mobilize anti-Chinese sentiment in the United States, um, right? That would be a really elegant information operation to make Americans um, attack their fellow Americans. And I don't think the Chinese are fleet of foot enough to be able to do that. They're actually really clumsy in their attempts to do anything other than bribe influence uh, in foreign countries. But we Americans can do it very effectively without any help, as we've seen. It's disgraceful that our fellow Americans are being targeted in this way. And it is equally disgraceful that people aren't using every possible platform in order to protect our friends and neighbors and to uh, give tips to the FBI and the police and publicly vilify people who are doing this. It's un-American to attack your fellow Americans and it shouldn't be any harder than that. But no, I don't think the Chinese are all that effective um, at mobilizing either that sentiment or its effect. No, no, and I, I didn't think they were. I thought that the, uh, the, the sort of nationalistic racist elements within, you know, yeah, it's just one more reminder that the uh, that the virulent and violent right wing nationalism that President Trump stoked and celebrated still needs to have that fire stamped out. I am, however, pleasantly uh, I am optimistic. I won't surprise you since I am the bearer of the tiara of optimism, but you know, 400 arrests from the January 6th insurrection and the FBI mobilizing to bring sedition charges against some of those people will have a powerful dampening effect on this. Getting the institutions of the state involved in preventing un-American uh, violent behavior is a really big step forward that we hadn't seen during the Trump administration. No kidding. Absolutely. A big, it's a big deal. Well, so we got a bunch of questions here. I'm going to fire them at you guys. We've got uh, 
you know, 20 minutes, but uh, let's try to keep the answers a little crisper. Um, Ed, um, one that is actually directed at you is, what is your take on the UK's integrated review of security, defense, development, and foreign policy? Is it a realistic assessment of the UK's place in the world? I would add that there's fairly significant concern uh, in the US arms control community last week with the decision as part of all of that. Uh, that the, the, the UK wants to add to its nuclear arsenal. Um, uh, uh, you know, Boris Johnson with more nuclear weapons is kind of disturbing. Um, what's your take? Um, well, that's that was one sort of aspect of the review that stood out. Um, the, the, the element that really sort of impressed itself on me was the fact that the um, Boris Johnson government is unfortunately putting its money where its mouth is in terms of the rationale for Brexit, which is Britain becomes global Britain, the new branding, um, uh, global Britain. And global Britain means that we've got to, you know, get an aircraft carrier out to the Pacific region and, um, you know, cut down on, because it's still a fairly pared down military, by, by definition, therefore by omission, cutting down on um, Britain's role as a regional security power. Uh, in its own neighborhood. And, and I think this is, this is kind of worrying because you know, Britain's pretensions to being a global power are delusional, um, but they are an attempt that might well work to suck up to the United States, which is what the entire strategy is based upon. Um, that um, you know, this, will, this will meet with great approval in the Pentagon. Maybe um, you know, they can put, they can have a British carrier group, you know, join the um, one of the, the sixth or seventh, I forget which it is. Um, and um, that'll just I I enhance America's um, presence in the region. I don't think that this will actually change America's calculations very much in practice, but I do think it'll hit Britain's bottom line from an economic point of view. And I think it's just strategically nonsensical, um, you know, to be weaker in your neighborhood, but to, you know, have this sort of pretense that empire is possible again, but in a sort of post-imperial world, it's, it, Britain is a medium-sized power. And this is a document of, which continu continuously uses the term leading world power. I, I just don't think that's realistic or practical. No, no kidding. That's absolutely right. Uh, David, I, I find the wording of this question irresistible. It says here, please discuss the cyber arms race per Nicole Perlroth's book. This uh, is how they tell me the world ends the cyber weapons arms race, um, neglecting altogether the perfect weapon by David Sanger. <laughs> um, uh, 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 which, uh, who works hand in hand with Nicole Prolroy. Let me, right. let me narrow that down a bit. Uh, the ODNI report uh, that Avril um, uh, uh, Haynes uh, put out um, undermined arguments that were made by uh, the former attorney general and others uh, that the Chinese were actually meddling in the 2020 elections. Uh, and yet the generals I spoke of earlier um, uh, 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 and Admiral made, made some significant references to Chinese cyber. Um, how big an issue do you see that as being uh, in, in the US uh, China relationship over the course of the next several years? I think it's going to not only be huge in the next several years, it's going to be huge in the next week or two. Uh, 
And uh, the reason for that, uh, let's start with Nicole. But does book, Nicole Perlroth, does Nicole have a big scoop coming out that we should be keeping? Uh, that could be it, yeah. Uh, no, I'll describe what I meant by that. Nicole's book is terrific and you should uh, all go out and buy it. Uh, and we should get her to come on and talk about it sometime on, on Deep State. Um, it's a it's a look at the at the state-sponsored individual hackers who go find zero-day flaws and use those zero-day flaws to get into computer systems around the world and particularly in the United States. And um, while the Chinese were not involved in the 2020 election, obviously they were deeply involved in the hack of the Microsoft Exchange systems which uh, along with solar winds are the two giant hacks of US networks that the Biden administration is having to go deal with. And before that, they was the Chinese who got into the Office of Personnel Management, into the Anthem healthcare system, into the Marriott reservation uh, uh, database. Uh, The list goes on and on. They're very skilled and very good at what they do. And when they got into the Microsoft Exchange system, they did it with four zero days, which are, of course, flaws that had never been seen um, before. So they're a very potent player in all of this. Their techniques are somewhat different than the Russians or the North Koreans or the Iranians. Um, So if there's going to be a cyber arms race, and there already is one, it's going to be largely a U.S., Russian and Chinese race with with a good show being put on by the British and the Israelis. So, Ed, you know, your your team is still in there uh, in a big way. Um, We're going to be a global power in cyber. That's excellent. Uh, you know, it, <laughs> GCHQ doesn't talk about it very much, but you go back into what I wrote in The Perfect Weapon, what we've all reported elsewhere, they were absolutely critical in detecting the Russians in this in the system in the 2016 election. Without GCHQ's notification, I'm not sure we would have found some of their big uh, intrusions. Um, so that then raises the question that we sort of raised, we were talking about a little bit earlier, David, which is if you're going to put your money into something, do you want it to be into a nuclear contest with the Chinese? Doesn't seem to make sense since their nuclear force is about 300 and the British increase is looking to get up to sort of Chinese levels uh, in the stockpile, or do you want to go put it into cyber, both offense and resilience from the Chinese? And I think it's pretty clear that we need to do the latter. Yeah. And by the way, Ed, I hope you're comforted in, in knowing that Britain remains a global power in um costume dramas and and Tweety detective series. And, and cricket, and cricket. Yeah. Okay, guys, I gotta and stomp t-shirts. in on this one. I gotta stomp in on this one. That's wildly unfair. They're hugely important American ally. It's a good review that they've done and I hope they will fund it um, fully because uh, if it works, it will be good for Britain and it will be good for the United States. Okay, um, but good. I'm glad you stomped stomped in on that and 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 crushed my lighthearted attempt at uh, frivolity there. 
Um, th let me read you a question, uh, Corey, that uh, comes directly from one of the audience members, a little long, but, but uh, uh, worth going through. It says here, we often hear that the Chinese government, unbeholden to voters, tends to think in terms of uh, decades or quarter centuries, yet China must deal with the U.S., that goes from Barack Obama to Donald Trump to Joe Biden in a matter of years and could swerve again in just a few years. How does that affect China, how China approaches the United States on issues ranging from human rights to trade in this environment? I'm so grateful for that question because it allows me to stomp and hiss about one of my favorite fallacies, which is that the Chinese Communist Party are brilliant hundred year thinkers uh, and free societies are at a woeful disadvantage because we always have to navigate what our publics will put up with. Um, I, I would love to see the case that suggests that the Chinese are that smart, but I just don't see it. And I actually think their behavior in real time in the last five years has been activating antibodies against their continued rise. I mean, if China really wanted to reverse Trump administration policies and persuade the United States and other Asian countries that we don't have to protect ourselves against Chinese behavior, what they just did in Anchorage is antithetical to that aim. So I, I flat out reject the notion that Chinese are brilliant long-term strategists and the rest of us just can't match it. That, that, that conflates the clarity of authoritarian decision-making uh, with good strategy when in fact the loud, messy disputatiousness uh, is what makes strategy both better grounded and more stable over time in free societies. And the last thing I'll say is if you look at the proof in alliances, right? Who makes more reliable allies? It's easy to say that democracies, because we can always reverse ourselves, but in fact, the historical data is quite strong that free societies are slower to make allied commitments and much more durable in the execution of them. Yeah. Um, since loud, messy dis disputatiousness is the whole reason we have this podcast, I'm 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 glad that you're on the side of it. Um, uh, Ed, uh, there's a question here, and it echoes a bit uh, your most recent column. It says here, should we could we attempt to reanimate the TPP? Um, now, your most recent column talked about kind of watershed being led by the Biden administration um, economically, uh, and maybe you can talk about that for a moment. Um, but I think an, an extrapolation of that is perhaps a change in the stance the United States is going to take reflexively on trade policy, um, because TPP was a, a result of, uh, of a Democratic Party policy, uh, Obama administration policy, that was still driven primarily in the direction of free trade and less guided by the concerns of, of labor. And we now have, as you noted in your column, the sort of the most pro-labor, uh, and by that I mean union, uh, administration in many, many decades. What's, what's your thought on how that might affect trade? Um, well, I, mean, I think, you know, if you were to ask Jason Furman, who was um, 
<clears throat> US trade representative for Obama and did a lot of the negotiating of TPP, he would say it's the most pro-labor, pro-environmental standard trade deal ever done. And I think with some reason, this, you know, this was very much a 21st century trade deal, um, which was to do with standards. Um, uh, and so it's probably been unfairly characterized. Um, when Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State said that um, it was the gold standard um, of trade deals, she wasn't far wrong. Of course, she then reversed herself because she wanted to become president. Um, and politics views trade very differently. I think in an ideal world, if the Biden administration had its druthers, America would be rejoining TPP. Um, it is the most effective um, way of binding China in to standards of globalization um, because it, it involves such a critical mass of countries, um, you know, in not just Japan and the US, but most of the other countries in the, in the region, unfortunately, uh, not including India, um, and of course, not including China. Um, but politics makes it pretty much impossible. So, you know, when Jake Sullivan, who's a very smart guy, talks about a foreign policy for the middle class. I think he coined that phrase, or maybe he didn't coin it, but he certainly popularized it. Um, essentially, I see this as a sort of posh way of saying, we're not gonna be doing any trade deals. And I totally get the politics of that, but it's a pity because um, if you want to look at why middle-class jobs have been, you know, so badly damaged in the last generation, um, and why incomes in particular have been, um, had such downward pressure on them. You have to look at technology, you have to look at automation, you have to look, and, and globalization is a much easier scapegoat because of, you can put a face on it. Um, but the real reasons are technology and politics. Politics has, you know, weakened unions. Um, it's, you know, encouraged tax competition. It's incentivized offshoring. It, it's it's withdrawn money from um, community colleges, and of course from the social safety net. All of these issues are, are you know are, are, are I think far more important than um, trade in terms of the harm done to the middle class. And TPP was a really excellent geopolitical tool, but like I would give it like a one in ten chance of um, of the United States rejoining it. By the way, I'd give it like a five in ten chance of Britain joining TPP, you know, it's left Europe. So it's, it's going just down the road a little to join the Pacific, which, you know, go, go figure. Uh, interesting. And I, I agree. I think that that is, that is going to be a tough, tough, tough area to make progress on in this, at least first term of this administration. Um, and foreign policy for the middle class was the title of a project done at the Carnegie Endowment, which Jake was one of the authors of. Um, uh, and so um, when, you Google, when you Google the title, you can get the, the original paper. Um, David, here's another one of the questions, um, and you can take it in whatever direction you want, but it says here, curious on the panelists' thought on whether Director Ray and General Milley should retain their jobs and why. Ray has been consistently underwhelming at best, and I can't imagine a junior officer maintaining position after the decision-making lapse that General Milley admitted to. Thanks. Hmm, good question. So um, the main reason to keep them in their jobs would be to send home the message of the depolitization 
of the FBI and of um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. You'll remember that we were barely, what, three months into the Trump administration when uh, Comey was, Director Comey was fired for um, failing to um, declare that he would, his first job was to protect uh, President Trump. Uh, and we were all pretty shocked that a political consideration would have gotten into that, that issue. Um, so I think keeping Gray on as part of a message to the Justice Department, reinforced by Merrick Garland when he had his first morning there after he was um, uh, approved by the Senate, to say that the era of politics inside justice is over. And so that would be the argument for keeping Ray there. And he, um, you know, so far, I'm not sure that people would necessarily rank him among the very top uh, FBI directors they've had so far, but we haven't had him that long to go uh, figure things out. He certainly seemed uh, to sort of try to steer a middle course and avoid um, uh, the worst of things with uh, the, the Trump administration. And you can't say the FBI hasn't vigorously been investigating the uh, January 6th uh, riot. For Milley, it's the same thing, that unless there is real severe cause, uh, you don't get rid of your chairman of the Joint Chiefs. They're supposed to bridge across um, uh, administrations. He brings with him a fair bit of uh, experience. And he has admitted straight up that he shouldn't have been there the day that uh, the president walked across Lafayette Park uh, to go in front of the, um, uh, in front of the church. And uh, so I think you sort of take that and you move on. Um, I've got one more question here. I don't know if, Corey, if you want to pick up at all on what David just said before I get to the question. I absolutely agree with David. Excellent. Um, uh, so here's a question. It's it's it goes in a slightly different direction, um, and the the questioner writes, "This is a selfish question, so feel free to ignore." But let's ignore that. My 16 year old is thinking of a career in foreign policy. Any words of advice? Do exactly what Corey's done. That's what I would say. <laughs> what does Corey say? Join the Marine Corps, take the foreign service exam, become an intelligence operative with the CIA. The government needs all sorts of talent in making sure that America's foreign policy is consistent with American values and shapes the world in positive ways. That is exactly the kind of positive message that I expected to get. We've got two more minutes left. We've missed having Ed here for... Um, uh, the past six weeks. And um, I, I can't help but ask a question, Ed, because there was a bit of a controversy over the weekend over comments from your uh, former uh, uh, colleague, Larry Summers, um, uh, regarding, you know, the U.S. entering a period of risk of inflation and uh, having kind of reckless uh, fiscal policy at the moment. And uh, you got a lot of pushback from a lot of people. Um, some people um, and, and I, as you know, I consider myself one of those people thinking that he's kind of out of touch with reality at the moment and frankly is not doing anything constructive with his point of view. Um, but you know him and you know these issues. And I was wondering how you'd frame this 
outburst from the former Treasury Secretary? That's a good question. I mean, I, I'm a little bit surprised uh, that he said what he said because in 2009, he was very much on the right side of the argument that you know the output gap that the stimulus needed to fill was way larger than the size of the stimulus. So he was arguing it should be like 1.5 trillion or something. And he was correct at the time with hindsight too, but at the time, um, and um, you know, Obama went with the sort of, um, with what Susan Collins wanted essentially. Um, so, so Larry was right on that. He was right in terms of diagnosing secular stagnation um, uh, as being, you know, what ails our economies which is just just a lack of uh, lack of investment, um, and you know a period of of slow growth, um, and so I understand the technicalities of him saying, look, well in this case, the stimulus is twice the size of the output gap, not half the size, and so you know when the facts change, I change my mind. I do, I totally understand that this is a one level of technicality, but he has used very strong language you know, to say that we've, you know, potentially got a 1970s stagflation situation around the corner. And, you know, it might be that he's peering more around the corner than anybody else. You know, um, but it, there seems to be sort of an element of, um, I don't know, there seems to be an element of snarkiness there, which I can't quite uh, explain, because generally speaking, the Biden administration is going in the direction he would have advised. Um, I suppose he he could have a strong political point there. Forget the economic. Forget whether inflation is being brewed. The the political point being, well, aren't we spending all our our powder, you know, on a one-off stimulus when Biden campaigned on build back better, and uh, longer-term investment, uh, structural reforms, etc. And aren't we now? Haven't we now shot most spent most of our capital? Um, that's a separate matter, and he might be right. Well, time will tell whether he's got a point on that one. But um, I'm a little surprised that he's been so vehement on the, in, you know, the stagflation scenario he he painted. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I, I, you know, the 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 the, the second guessing of the views of people like Janet Yellen um, and Chairman Powell, as well as the administration of a whole, is kind of. Um, astonishing. And, uh, you know, quite apart from the technical analysis, there's a human analysis, there's still um, as many people unemployed now as there were during the 2007-2008 financial crisis. Um, and uh, the blow to the economy um, is, 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 is many times out of step with that. And I don't think we're quite sure what the consequences of that will have been. And, um, you know, I, you know, as far as having our powder goes, I, I, I always like to go back to a early 19th century reference because it makes Corey feel at home. And this one will make you feel at home too, Ed, uh, because when the UK hit its sort of 225, 250% of GDP borrowing peak was after the Napoleonic Wars. And the successive, the, the, the century that followed that was its greatest pinnacle. Um, so it's, it's, there's not always a direct correlation between the level of your borrowing and, and, and the, the long-term consequences it may David, have. David, will you be sending us around Ed's columns on that? 
at the columns that wrote originally at the, at the time at the because I thought his coverage of the end of the Napoleonic Wars was fabulous. <laughs> I do my my editorial on the Great Freeze of seventeen oh five is was unimprovable. <laughs> <laughs> no question. There there is there is no there is no question about that. Um, uh, well. Guys, it has been good to have you. Um, and and I, I have to say, it's been good to have you along with some of our uh, longtime members joining in the conversation. Uh, that's what makes this uh, show each week so great, so rewarding. Um, and uh, we'll do this again because it's, it's great to have the interaction between deep state radio nerds and, uh, and the audience. See what I did there, um, uh, and uh, uh, we uh, we'll, we'll do we'll do it again real soon. For those of you who are interested in what else we've got cooking this week and in ensuing weeks, and there's a ton, go to the dsrnetwork.com, uh, and while you're there, click on membership, and um, you can uh, you know sign up for um, uh, the kind of privileges that let you post questions uh, on a show like this, as well as um, many other benefits. So the dsrnetwork.com. And in the meantime, uh, take good care of yourselves. Stay healthy, everybody. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Ed. And thank you, David.